Hey everyone, I'm Andy Petronic, and this is the Whole Life Challenge Podcast. It's the place we talk to exceptional people about the things that make them tick, exploring their life successes, lessons learned, daily habits and secrets, what helped them to get where they are, and how they stay on top of their game. Hey everyone, and this is uh, this is Andy Petronic, and welcome back to another episode of the Whole Life Challenge Podcast. Um, I just want to remind you guys, first of all, I'm very excited about our guest today. His name's Eric Barker, and I've been a subscriber to his podcast, not his podcast, to his blog, to his email list for, I don't know, at least a year. Uh, and he's on the call today. I'm so excited. Um, he's And he's got a crap ton of subscribers. So when he responded to me personally, when I said, hey, you want to be on my podcast, I was blown away and, and super excited because I love his, his, uh, stuff. And, um, um, but I want, before, before I bring him in, I wanted to, uh, remind you guys we're three weeks out from the start of the whole life challenge. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on, on a limb here. Uh, and I've been, I've been contemplating starting a ketogenic diet now for about a year. And I've always got a reason why I shouldn't do it. I've got a 10 year old. He eats pizza. I love pizza. I like ice cream. Um, and, but I feel like it's coming into alignment for me to give it a shot. And I'm going to use the whole life challenge as my eight week period of getting keto. Um, what do they call it? Keto adapted or I'm going to see how it goes anyway. Uh, it's a big step for me because eliminating, most of my carbohydrates is not going to be an easy task, but I wanted to commit to it uh, on air in person with thousands of people listening because it makes it stickier for me. And um, uh, there you go. So you've heard it here first. I haven't told anybody else I'm doing this. I haven't even told my wife or my family. They're going to, they're going to, well, it'll be an interesting change around our house. So, um, that's it. Three weeks. Join me. Uh, it starts on May 20th. Uh, I will have a team. I'll probably call the team something about keto since I'll be doing that. And uh, I'll let you guys know next week what the name of the team is so that uh, if you want to join me, you can. All right. So uh, I'm going to bring in our guest, Eric Barker, the founder and author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree. That's the name of his uh, his. Um, email list and his blog. And Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Andy. It's great to be on. I love your about the author page in the, at the back of your book. Um, you know, I love this. The, <laughs> the sentence is, uh, you know, I'm just going to read it to you guys. His work has been mentioned in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Atlantic Monthly, Time Magazine, The Week, Business Insider, and a bunch of other places he's far too lazy to Google right now. Um, it, it just is very much in the style of your writing and, uh, your, the engagement and, and kind of your whole, your whole message, you know, like what, what is up might be down and what is left could actually be right. And, um, you know, barking up the wrong tree is a really cool, how, how did you, first of all, let's let everybody else in on what you do. Cause, uh, you know, I'm talking about you as if everybody else knows and, Barking up the wrong tree could mean anything. Um, what, what, tell, tell everybody about your blog and, and what it is you do and how you got going in, in this line of writing and work. Uh, basically, the 
blog is uh, I, I look at scientific research, uh, books on subjects, I interview experts and try to just figure out like science, I guess science-based self-improvement uh, in the sense of looking at the research, talking about the experts and then, you know, kind of doing a deep dive on how to, how to improve everything from uh, happiness to productivity to relationships. And, you know, and I try to, to take sometimes really uh, hard to, hard to understand uh, the scientific research and studies and make it accessible and fun. How did you get started doing this? I mean, has this been your, this has not been your life's work. I'm, I'm in reading your bio. There's a lot more to you than just this blog. Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, I reached a point of transition where, um, you know, I, I was wondering, you know, what, what's, cause the, the book is all is primarily focused on the research around success and there's, so much pithy advice and these maxims we hear when we when we're young, like nice guys finish last and quitters never win and winners never quit. And, and we don't even know if that that's true. And so with the book, I wanted to uh, give it the Mythbusters treatment and see if, if if any of these things were supported by the scientific research, by the experts. And for me, you know, I first started down this journey where I kind of reached the crossroads where I had a very unconventional career. And a lot of the advice I was getting didn't seem to to apply or I'd seen too many exceptions to it. And so I wanted to get, you know, as as legitimate answers as I could. And so I started looking at uh, at academic research. And that that was what propelled the blog forward, trying to get, you know, real, you know, real or as real as we can uh, answers to a lot of the problems we all face. And I I wanted the answers myself and I figured I might as well share them with anybody out there who's curious. I'm just curious, what was the uh, crossroads you were at in your in your career and what was the advice you were given that may not have steered you the right way? Uh, I mean, I I'm in my undergrad, I majored in philosophy, so it wasn't like I, I had a, a career set forward, uh, you know, for me by my studies. And then I was actually a screenwriter in Hollywood for for like 10 years. And I wrote for Disney, I wrote for Fox. I, you know, I had some success, but it's, it's very up and down. It's, you know, it's freelance. You never, you never know what's coming next. And, uh, then I went on, I, I got an MBA, but I realized, you know, I wasn't terribly well suited for, you know, most of the roles that, that MBAs end up in. And I just reached, reached a point where I, you know, I wasn't really sure, you know, what was next. And, you know, the, the advice in terms of, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I saw myself as, you know, a, a little bit more, more creative, a little bit more outside the box. And here I am going into the most in the box, uh, type career you can. Right. Right. And, and, and that's some of what the book explores, <clears throat> you know, in terms of I've worked as an individual, uh, you know, creative producer. And now I was going into, you know, a very team burst, team based kind of corporate atmosphere. So I know how important is networking when you'd been a solitary writer who, who didn't need to think as much about networking, you know, um, so all these, these issues, you know, are, are, are addressed in the book, um, you know, in a more, in a more general sense that they apply to, to people's lives other than just my own. But those issues of, you know, playing by the rules, uh, those issues of, you know, is it what you know or who, you know, uh, those are all chapters in the book and, and trying to address those, those little pithy maxims we've heard, but we don't know if they're true or not. Yeah. You know, in, in reading the book, I, um, uh, it's so dense. There's so many, there's so much 
you you present so much information. It's it's it was hard at first. Actually, I got really into it, and then I went back through and and um and took notes. And there's so much incredibly valuable stuff, like study after study after study after study, and um it's presented in a way that's kind of fun and engaging and, and makes you want to read more. I, re- I really enjoyed uh, working my way through it, even though it was dense, you know, like typically I don't enjoy dense books. I don't, uh, I, you know, it's like reading, it's like I went to college once and I don't need to revisit that. I don't need to read textbooks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And your, yours was, you know, presented in a way that was much different. Maybe it was presented that way, but maybe it's also because it's about my life, like that, that I want to read it differently than, um, I don't know. I don't know which one it is, but it, it was re- really, really enjoyable to me. No, I mean, for me, I, you know, it's, I'm, it's like a lot of the stuff is being pulled from scientific studies, which are, which are not known for, for, uh, for rivaling summer movies in terms of entertainment value. And, um, you know, I, so for me, it's like, we want the information, we want the lessons, but we, we want, we want a little, we want a little sugar to help the medicine go down. And, for me, it's always that balance of, of being informative and legitimate while also making it accessible and, and fun. And, you know, and I, and I think, frankly, a lot of business books are, you know, are a little light on on information where they kind of have maybe one, two, maybe three principles. And they just kind of hammer them into your head over and over again for 250 pages. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that, hey, here's here's a here's a lot of information. You're going to get a lot of value from from this and it's not, it's not going to be, uh, redundant. Yeah. You know, you know what I found was so amazing in, in coming to the conclusion of the book and I, I'm not giving it, listen, everybody, I'm not giving anything away. This, this, this is not a, this is not a fiction book where you're looking for the punchline or for the end. But, um, in when you, when you, when you, when it comes right down to it, it's really about alignment, right? It's really about, there's no such thing as a rule that is, hard and fast, the right way to, to do things like whether you're, um, internally motivated or externally motivated, or you have your, your, um, what are the words I'm thinking of? You're, um, not internally or externally, but you're, um, intrinsically or extrinsically. Yeah, no, but when, when you'd like to hang around people, you don't like to hang around people. You're oh, um, extroverted, or extroverted or introverted. Yeah. Or you're, you know, or you're a rule follower or rule breaker or like it's, it's knowing thyself well enough to find out what's in alignment for you and then capitalize on the things that, that, that make that style work. No, I think that's what's, that's why there's so many, various forms of success, you know, out there. And, and by the same token, you know, sadly, that's why we all know some people who have tremendous potential, but never get where they want to go because, you know, it's not, it's not just about potential. It's not just about, uh, where you're born in life or where, where, what context you're in. It's really about an alignment between, you know, your, your signature strengths and the content, a context that allows you to, to exploit them. And to, you know, it's, it's that balance between those two that allows you to be, to be successful because, you know, many, many things that would be generally considered strengths, uh, aren't going to work in some environments and, you know, many things that are weaknesses could be it, you know, it's, it's that balance. It's that alignment between, you know, who you are and where you are that makes all the difference. Right. Right. What, one of the lines I loved from the book is, um, we love to have choices, but we hate making choices. 
Can you talk a little bit about that conundrum and um, how that kind of fits in? Yeah, I, that's, that's kind of uh, me, me being clever with some research by um, Barry Swarthmore. At, I'm yep. sorry, sorry, Barry Schwartz, Barry Schwartz at, who teaches at Swarthmore. And he's got a great book uh, called Paradox of Choice. And, you know, we always want more options because that, that means, you know, more potential. It means that potentially a better fit. Um, but on the flip side, um, more options doesn't necessarily lead to the best results. What, what Schwartz found in his research was that, you know, basically when you have few options, um, you know, we don't, we don't like being in those situations, but what that allows you to do is, is put the blame, excuse me, put the blame squarely on the world where I didn't have a lot of choices. What was I supposed to do? And that allows you to sleep at night. Whereas when you have tons of options, there's a much greater chance that you're going to choose wrong or you're going to choose a suboptimal, a suboptimal choice. And that means that if you don't choose right, it's your fault. And that makes it very hard in terms of being happy. What, he, what they found specifically in one study was in students graduating and looking for jobs, uh, the ones who explored the most options, who who did the most work, they got objectively better jobs. They got higher salaries. They got more prestigious positions, but they were less happy with them because once your brain is in that frame of, you know, optimize, 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 you can get into a perfectionist attitude of, of nothing's ever going to be good enough. So we, we love choices, but it's very difficult because we hate deciding because when you decide you, you cut off those choices. And we need to find a balance where, where we're much happier with, with what we find. And what Schwartz recommends is seeking good enough. You know, what is a good enough choice? Because if, you, if you're looking for the best book on Amazon.com, you're going to be looking for a long time. Right. And, you know, and that's, that's really hard. And our culture kind of says, good enough's not good enough. I want the best. I want number one. And that's really not a, it's not a realistic prescription. And it's certainly not a prescription for happiness. How do, how do you figure out what is good enough? I mean, you want to you want to look more internal than external. If you're if you're exploring every possibility, like I said, books on Amazon.com, it's impossible. You just you just don't have enough time. New books are being added every day. Um, it's asking yourself what categories, what qualities matter to me. And again, this is from from uh, from Barry's research is what, what things matter to me, what's important to me, and then finding the first thing or one of the first things that satisfies all those requirements rather than an exhaustive search. Right. Because like I said, what, you know, if you think about the computer, you know, a computer would go through every possibility and would find the optimal thing, but a computer doesn't have feelings. A computer doesn't have our, our human wiring and so we, so we can, can much like the students in the job, the job study, we can get the optimal answer and feel worse for it. And so we, we can't treat it like it's merely an algorithm. We have to deal with our, our human operating system. And I think there was the words you use in the book to describe that is the difference between maximizing and satisficing. Yeah. And basically maximizing is that attitude of, uh, is that attitude of I have to have the absolute best and I'm going to explore every possible option until I get that. 
uh, versus satisficing is saying to yourself beforehand, what are the X number of things, the four or five things I absolutely have to have. And once I get find something that satisfies those four or five things, I'll choose that one. And that's that's how you create a good enough scenario versus trying to find perfection which in the end can ultimately be frustrating. It's a little like uh, Tim Ferriss's concept. I don't know if it's Tim's, but uh, he talks about it, the minimum effective dose, right? It's, uh, you know, stop once you get to the dose that takes care of what you needed to take care of. Don't keep going to try to find the perfect solution or the ultimate, you know, uh, dose. Yeah, you, you, you know, it's, how could you do that? You know, we're, we're too busy. We got too much, right. too right. much going on. You know, you you would have to you know, you would have to be a monk who only does one thing uh, in order to truly optimize uh, something. And then you're in a uh, all your eggs in one basket situation, which which is problematic as well. Right. Right. How have you used I mean, well, I'm, I'm assuming you have. How have you used the advice from that chapter in your own life? Um, believe me, the. Uh, you know, I I could have I could have spent uh, years writing this book. I could I could spend days writing each blog post. Um, you know, but there's a what's the old Steve Jobs quote? Is great artists ship. You right. Know, you right. Have to the product you have to get it out. Yep. So having so rather than looking to the world and saying, okay, how good could this be? What is the x potential? What is the the nth? And doing these comparisons. Uh, saying to yourself, you know, what's important to me? What what are my standards? Make sure I fulfill those, and then and then finish the damn thing, you know, because because there's great value in actually finishing things, getting it out the door, learning from it, versus trying to 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 perfect something and taking far too long. Uh, you know, there's value in iterating. Uh, when you look at the research on creativity, uh, you see that you know. Some of the most creative people, they don't necessarily – everything they do is not a home run. Usually the, the, what the research shows in terms of creativity is voluminous work, is you just do more and more and more and more. And if, if ceteris paribus, if there's you – know, if, if 2% of what you do is awesome, then a bigger number of stuff, that 2% is going to be a bigger number. Right. But, that, but, that's, but what you're saying is that's not necessarily true, right? Because more is not necessarily better. Well, in terms of in terms of options, uh, more is not necessarily better. But in terms of doing doing work, uh, you know, the more work you do, uh, if you if you say that the percentage of work that will be awesome holds constant, then doing more work, you'll produce more awesome stuff that people will remember. So, me, so like, let me see if I got what you what you mean. If you're a writer, or if you're a, say a musician the more, more often you publish a new song or write a new, or publish a new blog post or publish a new journal article or whatever, the, the more, uh, voluminous your work and the more likely it is to increase the size of that 2%. Yeah. Basically, if you look at, there's a strong correlation between, uh, between the, the, the people who do the best work and the people who do the most work. Ah. is that you will you will frequently see now I now, now of course we all hear the stories about Mozart and he didn't his, his he had it came out perfectly the first time he wrote it down and and there's a reason we tell those stories and that's because they're the exceptions but in general the people who do the most work Just, there we go well all right hello 
and so the um, and so the people who do the most work uh, often do the best work. And so getting a lot of stuff out there just means. I mean, if you look at Picasso, how many sketches he did, you know, how much how much work actually got finished. And we only look at Guernica and a handful of actual pieces, but he got those because he did so much other stuff. Yeah, I think in the book you talk about Ted Williams, and um, and then and then there's you know in my mind that came up was was Thomas Edison, um, Alexander Graham Bell, some of the great inventors and athletes of our time. The amount of work that they do, the volume of work that they put in. I, the other thing you talk about it with Ted Williams is that's not always that doesn't always lead to a happier life. No. Um, and that, that section of the book is all about the, the work-life balance conundrum right? where, you know, the, the reason that's a, one of the reasons that that's such a hard issue is because yes, you know, more work produces more results. There's, there's really no doubt about it. Uh, you know, all the research sort of points in that direction. And so, yes, if, 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 you know, work or making money is the only thing, the only thing that matters to you, then yeah, by all means, uh, you know, go all in on that. But if you care about your health, your happiness, your relationships, uh, you know, then then you need to draw a line. And the reason that, you know, work life balance is such an issue now and it wasn't an issue for our grandparents is because in the past, the world used to draw the boundaries for you. You know, the office closed at 5 p.m. Right. Uh, you didn't have uh, a, a cell phone in your pocket. Uh, you weren't reachable 24 seven. The files were at the office, not at home. Yeah, now when I, when I watch old episodes of, um, of, uh, Mad Men, not old episodes, new episodes of a show about the sixties, the Mad Men. Yeah. Like it just struck me as strange. Like when he, when Don Draper left the office, nobody knew where he was, you know, and nobody, you, you, there was impossible to know where he was unless he picked up the phone, found a phone somewhere and called. I mean, it's just, it, it's such a different world that we live in today. I mean, that's the it's the double edged sword. Of, right. You know, right. We, we want to be able to to order stuff on Amazon at two o'clock in the morning. You know that those options are fantastic. But on the flip side, you know, do you want to be reachable 24 seven? And and when it when it comes time for promotion, uh, who are you going to promote? The the guy who was uh, accessible 24 uh, seven or the person who said, don't bug me after 5 p.m.? Of course, you're going to pick the first person. So that puts a downward pressure on all of us to do more, more, more. And, you know, and that's that's dangerous because, you know, you can only run on that treadmill for so long before you fall off. I want to come back to because we, we went down a, a wormhole and I want to come back to what you were saying about your blog and your writing. How um, what is your process? And, I, and one of the reasons I asked this question is I think each one of us out in the world, whether we're writers or we're, you know, musicians or we're accountants or lawyers, we, we each have to make the kinds of decisions that, and have processes around our work. And I, and I love to love to hear how your process, um, works for you to potentially inspire me or inspire listeners who have, you know, who have processes that could use improvement. And how, how do you decide when it, when is enough enough? When is good enough, good enough that you publish? What, like, how do you, how do you work that out? I mean, you know, my, my process is, my process is a little messy, uh, in, in the early stages where I'm just reading tons and tons of stuff and, and looking for, for things that are, uh, that, that 
that fit in the Venn diagram overlap between what I'm interested in, what my readers will be interested in. And then, you know, I'll, I'll find something that's interesting. I'll start exploring that, you know, if it's an article, then I'll look for the, for the, the writer's book. And then maybe I'll interview the, 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 the writer. And, and then I'll look for complementary materials along those same lines or, or studies that reinforce, you know, what they're saying, but it can, it can come from any one of those angles. There might be an interesting person who I interview and then I subsequently read their book or I look at research and then I look for books and talk to an expert. So it can come from any one of those places. Uh, or I'll have an idea, you know, or a reader will suggest an idea and then I'll start, I'll go down the rabbit hole there and start uh, exploring that. But then, you know, once I have, I always want to have, you know, uh, uh, like 150% of what I need because it's, it's far better to have too much and edit than to have too little uh, and, and not have enough. And then. So when you start writing a blog post, cause you, you come out with a newsletter every week. I know that's, that's different than the book. Um, but your blog is really where the book came from. I mean, your blog is called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, so is the book, right? So it, that was, I'm guessing that was the impetus for the book. Uh, in, in some ways, I mean, the, the, the book is, is much more specific, focused on success, whereas the blog yes, yes. You know, covers everything from relationships to parenting to negotiation to product, productivity, happiness. Right. Um, so the, the book is, is more specific and is more of a deep dive uh, right. down into that. But, but yeah, I've been, I've been looking at a lot of, a lot of the, the studies uh, that I looked at, yeah, started with, uh, me, me writing for the, uh, me writing for the blog. When you, so when you, um, you, you publish once a week, do you, uh, have a publishing schedule? Do you, do you know what you're going to do four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks in advance? Do you write multiple articles at one time? Do you work on one thing at a time in a week? Like how do you manage the production of your blog? Uh, it's, it's not, it's not that rigorous. It, it probably, it probably should be, but for me, you know, given that, you know, I I don't have a staff, I don't have an assistant. I do it all. I do it all myself. Uh, so there aren't those dependencies. Uh, so for me, it's, you know, I'll have a bunch of, I have a ton of ideas down or I have a bunch of, uh, things I've read where I'm like, this has potential. And then, at some time during the week, you know, I'll figure it out. I'll crystallize it. I'll start accumulating all the, uh, you know, all the pieces and structuring them, uh, into something readable. But, but no, I, I don't, I don't go weeks in advance. Uh, my, I might live longer if I did. <laughs> uh, right, you know, right. Life would be a lot less stressful. Uh, but, but no, I'm, I'm always kind of on the lookout and, and I mean, and the vast majority of stuff I come across you know, doesn't, doesn't for, for my personal standards and preferences, uh, doesn't make the cut. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so when, when people say, Oh, you know, I appreciate you read that book. It's like, well, you know, no, actually I read five books and four of them, th three of them had nothing useful. Uh, one of them had a couple tidbits and one of them was a gold mine. Right. Um, who's your, do you have an editor? Like how do you, do you edit your own stuff? Yeah, I yeah, I don't I don't have I don't have anybody uh, on staff. Uh, wow. I mean, for the for the book, yeah, I mean, the book was done with Harper Collins, so yeah. there was an editor yeah. and all of that. But for the blog, no. That's impressive because I know when I write, uh, if I didn't have an editor, my my writing would be crap, C R A P crap. 
Um, so it's, that's, that's, uh, that's impressive that you've been able to, you know, grow it the way you have, uh, what you've been doing now for what, 10 years? Um, eight, eight years of the blogs, uh, going to be like eight years old in, in July. And it's weekly every week for eight years. Um, I mean, well, phew, it, it started out with me li- literally just copying and pasting, um, interesting scientific abstracts. And I would literally post like five of those a day. Then I went to longer form uh, pieces and and I did those daily or like six days a week for a while. And uh, I only started the mailing list. The blog started in 2009. I started the mailing list in 2012. Okay. Uh, and then eventually I moved to one long form post uh, per week. Okay. All right. Well, that's been an evolution. And I think that's healthy. I think, yeah. you know, just finding like finding out what works and finding out, you know, what, what readers are really interested in and, uh, and what interests me. And, you know, after a while, the, the one-off stuff wasn't as interesting to me because, you know, it, you know, I mean, one study can say one thing and 10 things can disagree with it. So looking at a bunch of different, uh, you know, relevant, uh, relevant sources and coming to more thorough conclusions or being able to address conflicts is, that's far more interesting and, and authoritative than, than just finding like one random result. Right. Right. Do you, do your friends that, uh, that know what you do ask you for your advice before they take action or before they want to do something? Do, do you have a lot of inquiries from your close relationships? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the, I mean, you know, it's, I mean, for for very abstract things, occasionally, but you know, it's that that would be a very awkward sort of friendship. If sure, uh, yeah, yeah, of you know, there's there's just that there's that kind of status issue where you know, I mean, to be always asking somebody for advice. I mean, you you want to feel like peers. You don't want to feel like somebody yeah. you know, doesn't know it all. I mean, I get an enormous amount of uh, email from from readers. Um, but yeah, with, with friends, not so much. And, uh, and believe me, there's times where I just have to keep my mouth shut because, you know, I, I look and I'm like, I think most of the experts would disagree with the decision you're making, but I'm just (laughs) not going to say it because that's how you lose friends. Right. Right. Is that, is that hard? I, I mean, look, you know, it's like, it's, it's not a perfect, none of this is a, is a perfect science. And you can't walk around thinking that you have all the answers, you know, so, so right, I'm, right. you know, I, it, it's more like card counting, you know, where, where you're not going to win every hand, but you, you'll win more than you lose. Uh, so, you know, so there's times where I'll hear something and I'll be like, uh, it doesn't sound right to me, but, right. but Hey, I don't, I don't know everything. So I, it's, it's not hard for, for me to, to, to keep my mouth shut because, because Hey, I'm, I'm wrong too. I'm I'm not perfect. So, um, uh, I highlighted something in my notes that we don't schedule work. We schedule interruptions. I thought that was brilliant. Um, now I, I, I wonder, do you, do you follow the advice you give in your book about calendaring and about your daily shutdown ritual? If this is in the last chapter of the book, uh, I, the, the scheduling, the scheduling work versus interruptions, uh, I definitely do. But, uh, 
I, one of the most common questions I get asked is, is if I follow my own advice. And the, the, uh, the answer is, uh, you know, is, uh, to the, to the, to the best I can, uh, because so it's sometimes, know, yeah, some, sometimes I, there, is an answer. <laughs> there, there, there were 5,000 posts on my blog and, you know, there's, there's no way to, yeah. uh, to incorporate all of that. There's definitely some things I use every day. There are some other things that I will implement from time to time. But, you know, I mean, I also post on stuff like parenting and I don't have kids. Right. So, right. um, so, you know, on some things I can't implement the advice. Uh, and, and then, you know, as I, as I talk about in the book where, you know, it's not always an issue of here's the easy, right answer. Uh, very often it's more an issue of trade-offs. You know, there is a time to show grit. There is a time to quit. There is a time to, to be a workaholic and there is a time to focus on your relationships and enjoy life. So, you know, so very often it's, it's not as simple as, you know, two plus two equals four. Very often it's just looking at the realistic trade-offs and making the best decision that works for you. Right. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the, the context of being in control and calendaring and, uh, how calendaring helps to be in control, which actually is something that we all kind of strive for and makes us happier in the long run, having plans and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, uh, a fundamental thing that you, you see from, you know, from dating back 2000 years ago to Buddhism to right up to modern productivity advice is, is just the dangers of being fundamentally reactive. And this is, you know, an extraordinary problem in the modern world. Uh, because of, you know, the, the rise of technology where, you know, rather than us waking up and, you know, saying, okay, what do I need to accomplish today? What are my plans? Um, you know, we are constantly assaulted and bombarded by the world making demands on us. And you know, you're getting texts and emails and notifications on your phone. Facebook is saying, do this. Your friends are recommending that. Um, you know, a last minute thing crops up and all of a sudden, you know, you're being, you're being drawn in a lot of different directions, uh, to, to put out fires, uh, that, that don't help you move forward on the things that are really important to you. So that, that danger of reactivity, uh, those, that is when, when you say I did a thousand things today and I did not accomplish anything that was important to me, I think we all have that feeling and that's, that's the problem of reactivity. And the solution to that is to, to have clear priorities. And then after you have clear priorities determined by your values, you want to have a plan. And that's where scheduling work rather than interruptions comes into it. That's where the, uh, the other thing I talk about where Cal Newport, uh, professor Georgetown says that, you know, to-do lists are evil. He, he basically says, put everything on your calendar because you can easily put together a to-do list that has, you know, for t today's to-do list, which has 28 hours worth of stuff on it. Well, there's only 24 hours in a day. There's no way you're going to accomplish all of that. So if you put things into your calendar, you can say to yourself, I'm not going to get all this done. And then you can ask yourself what's important. So let me prioritize that and let me do that first because that really matters. Um, so that level of planning helps you make sure that rather than just accomplishing things and making sure you're accomplishing the right things. So it's really, it's really about taking the time and this is important, you know, in the whole life, I, you, you probably don't know anything about what I do and what the whole life challenge is, but we, we basically have an eight week challenge to help people 
be responsible for and accountable to seven daily habits, which we've found when combined and done simultaneously in your life, exercise, nutrition, sleep, um, stretching, uh, drinking water, uh, reflecting on how you're doing and then engaging in some sort of a lifestyle practice, which revolves through the challenge. Um, those things are, are, are compatible with and very effective at helping you to make positive changes in your life, uh, towards your health and well-being, And, um, creating a plan for that helps you not get derailed by the derailing events of life, which are so numerous now they're, you know, like I just started to shut off notifications of various apps and dings on my computer because I noticed how if I'm trying to write something or trying to think about something, I don't, it knocks me out of my thinking when I hear a ding. It's a, and it didn't, it's funny that I didn't, I've read that and I've known about that, but I, I had an experience. This is like literally like two weeks ago when I was like, I can't stop this dinging. Like it, it's pulling me out of my ability to actually think clearly. No, uh, Cal Newport actually talks about that in his, his, his excellent book, deep work where there's research that shows that basically that, that transition from one activity to another we may think it's seamless, but it's really not. There's there's kind of a there's kind of an activity hangover where when you move from one activity to another, uh, your your brain is not the the transition is slower and there's a big gap. I think you know maybe upwards of twenty minutes where you're not fully into what you're doing next. At least if it's cognitively complex like writing, and so when you shift back and forth you know, you're, you're just not, you're not firing on all cylinders, uh, you know, and that's why creating bigger chunks of time to work exclusively on one thing, uh, when it's cognitively complex, uh, is much better than, you know, breaking things into say 10 or 20 or 30 minute chunks. And, um, you know, and I, I totally agree with you in terms of many of the habits you're describing where, you know, so many people, uh, you know, want a quick fix in terms of improving performance or, or, you know, uh, uh, you know, in terms of getting things done and, you know, and, and they want to hear some magic pill or some, you know, uh, some arcane technique. And, you know, the first thing I always say to them is, you know, are you getting enough sleep? Are you exercising? You know, are you, are you, are you eating decently? And nobody wants to hear that, but those are the true superpowers where, you know, you want to be smarter. Most of the research says you should be exercising. It's like you want to you want to be fully functional, get through the day, not feel like crap. It's like you need to be sleeping more. You, you know, if you, you want to be happier. You, sh- you should be sleeping more. And you yeah, know, the, the impact of sleep. I was really surprised and psyched to see your the 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 part of your book that you talk about sleep and the importance of sleep, because it, it's 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 kind of like the. I don't know. It's kind of the drug of the 20, what are we in? What year are we in? 2017, the 20, the, the 20, what, what is this decade called? Yes. The, the 2010s, the 2010s <laughs> I was searching for the word. Um, uh, I mean, it's kind of a, a buzz thing, but, the, but there was some really compelling things that you talked about in your book. I'm, I'm not, I'm not remembering what they are right now. Can you, maybe oh, you well, can, I mean, one of the critical things, and the most one of the, one of the most critical things to remember uh, is that we are actually quite terrible at 
perceiving uh, how tired we are, right, you know, right. where, where, you know, it's like people will say, you know, oh, well, I've only gotten five hours of sleep for the past week, but I'm fine. That is pretty much the exact equivalent of your drunk friend saying, give me the keys. I could drive. Right. 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 They think they're fine. They think they're fine. They're completely wrong. Right. Because the, the, because the thing, the the thing that's causing the problem is their brain and their brain is what tells them they're okay. Well, that's, that's kind of a real uh, problem there because we, we don't perceive, you know, uh, there was one study, uh, that, that was done, uh, I believe at university of Pennsylvania where, where they had people, you know, only sleep like five or six hours a night for a week or two. And they asked people, how do you feel? And they said, oh, at first I feel like crap, but, but now I've adapted to it. I'm fine. I've adapted to it. And before the sleep deprivation and after the, uh, the week or two of sleep deprivation, they tested people and they saw, you know, the performance of their brain had declined dramatically, but they, but they didn't think that it was the case, but their brains were jello at that point. And they, they couldn't tell. So it's really insidious because it's one of those areas where you can't trust your feelings. You are like that drunk screaming for their keys and you don't realize it. Yeah. The problem is, uh, it's so deep. You can't tell you have the problem. And one of the problems I think that we have as a society is we're addicted. It's, it's almost a badge of honor to say how little sleep you got because you're, you're more productive. You can do more things in a day. You can watch more TV. You can see more, you know, see more movies or read more books or, you, you know, uh, as opposed to you get a badge of honor for, I got nine hours of sleep last night. No, I, I think that we, our culture, you know, says that it's, you know, that, that, you know, busyness is to be prized. And also in the age of technology, we we tend to look at things through this sort of, you know, uh, technological model where, you know, com- computers can work 24-7. You know, the servers at Amazon and Google are working 24-7. Yep. And we that's the lens we filter it through. And we forget that, you know, we, we, are, we are biological machines and there are rules. And one of those rules is you need rest and you need good rest and you need it regularly. You can't go 24 seven. And, uh, and if, and if you try, you know, you will have problems, whether you realize them or not, you will have problems. What does the research research say about the early part of the day? Cause I th- thought that was interesting too. Like, um, that the, the, the first three or four hours or two to three hours are the most productive. Um, what about people that say they're night owls and they work better at night? Like what, what have you learned about that? Uh, I mean, you know, there there are definitely exceptions in terms of, you know, there's been a lot of study on chronotypes where, you know, some people work better at, at night or that. But in general, with most people who have a, um, you know, who have a, a regular day job with regular hours, you know, most people, not immediately after they wake up, but most people are, are more productive uh, in those first few hours of the day. And, and that leads to an, an obvious productivity uh, benefit where we often think about more, more, more in terms of working more hours. But, you know, if, if, if you are going to be 2x or 3x more productive during some hours, then all hours are not created equal. And so spending that most productive time on the tasks that matter, you're going to get much more done than spending, you know, four less optimal hours 
on the same task. And, you know, it, the, the same sort of principle applies for happiness where, you know, what you find is that the, the mood people wake up in, you know, when they, when the old saying, you know, wake up on the wrong side of the bed, uh, there's some truth to that where if, you know, where people's moods, you know, generally the, the mood you have in the morning and the level of productivity you had in the morning generally carries through uh, and declines through the rest of the day. So, you know, if you're feeling crappy in the morning, probably going to feel crappy, you know, for, for the rest of the day, you may have little high points and spikes, but it, it's probably not going to be it. So that's another reason why getting more sleep is really critical uh, because how you feel in the morning often determines how you feel for us today. I know there are days when I wake up in the morning that I, that I, I feel fine, but, but I immediately get stressed about the things that I need to get done. And if I don't start doing them and I, which I typically don't because I have a son and I have my wife and you know, we do family stuff for a good hour and a half before I get going. I invariably go down a, you know, it's a, it's a negative rabbit hole that I go down. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to do about that. I, I <laughs> maybe I need to get up earlier and, and deal with those things before, you know, I have family time. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, everybody's, everybody's schedules, everybody's schedules a little bit, a little bit different, but you know, you want to find something that, that works for you. I mean, because we, we can't, you can't just take the, the, the research wholesale and, you know, try, try and just directly implement that in, in your life. You just kind of want to look at the principles and see, you know, okay, what can I use? What can I not use? What applies? What doesn't, you know, because everything's not going to, going to fit, uh, you know, perfectly for everyone, but you want to be cognizant of, of what works best so that you can, you can try to use the things that, that will help you. Right. Right. What, um, can you talk a little bit about relationships and friendships and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if this is a too general a question. I mean, I, I <laughs> um, is it too general? Can you can you just start talking about that? Because your chapter is fascinating about negotiation and uh, using mentors. I don't know which. I don't know what to start with. Uh, I mean, the the key element there is just in terms of when you look at uh, the the issue of networking, you know, in business is that. Uh, research by Francesca Gino at, at Harvard Business School showed exactly what most of us feel, which is that, you know, transactional networking, uh, getting to know people just so you can get something or get ahead, it makes us feel sleazy. You know, it it, it does. And, and you know, it, what it would seem is that a really good response to that, if you look at uh, Fortune magazine called Adam Rifkin, the most networked guy in Silicon Valley, and when I spoke to him about his thoughts on networking, they were exceedingly simple. He said, I just try to make friends, hmm. you know, and so looking through the lens of friendship as opposed to this awkward, you know, really difficult idea of contacts and networking. We've, we've all been making friends since before we were in kindergarten. How do you define friends? I mean, like I've, I've always read that there's about 150 people that you can effectively keep in touch with. I don't remember what that number is called, but it's a, there's a thing that about a hundred, 150 people in your community how, yeah. you know, if you have 3000 contacts in your book and you consider them all friends, how do, how do you, what does a guy like Alan say about that? Did you ask him that or what, uh, I mean, what have you well, found? You know, I mean, I, I, like the, the 150 number is, is Dunbar's number. Dunbar's and, number. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, you, you can't, 
you can't scale uh, limitlessly in terms of friends. But the, but the point is that rather than simply running around trying to find people who can do things for you, uh, you know, actually giving a crap about people and wanting to get to know them as human beings. I mean, you know, you, you can be friendly to the, um, to the UPS guy and to the, uh, the person at the post office, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, you know, sleazy exchanging business cards, like transactional as opposed, as opposed to being transactional. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so actually caring about people and finding things you have in common, um, you know, that taking that attitude of, of just getting to know someone, uh, right. Are they going to be your, uh, you know, your best friend? You know, no, but actually caring about them as a person as opposed to simply what they can do for you, uh, that's something that's much more natural. And, and what the research finds in terms of a great starting point for increasing your network is actually to reconnect with old friends. It's incredibly easy. You, you know, you, and you, it's not hard. It's not sleazy. You, are, you already know these people. And if you look at, uh, you know, research uh, by Mark Granovetter shows that, you know, most of us are likely to find out about new jobs, new opportunities, uh, not through strong ties, like your close friends, your family, but through weak ties, people who are one degree out, your, your acquaintances by reconnecting with them, because your friends, your family, you talk to them frequently, you probably hear about the same things they hear about. It's when you go one degree out that you're talking to people you don't communicate with frequently who move in very different circles and they're likely to hear about opportunities that you wouldn't hear about otherwise. Have you actually experimented with that yourself? Have you reached out to old friends and tried and seen what that has done, what that does for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm promoting a book. I'm reaching out to everybody. Right. Right. (laughs) Is that, is that, is that awkward? I mean, does it feel in all, cause I, I can feel like a little bit of, ah, like I just, I'm reaching out because I want them to know about my book, you know, like I'm, I'm almost like, Oh yeah. Is that sleazy? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know? I'm, I'm obvious. I'm obviously exaggerating. For, right. Right. For comic effect. But, but I mean the, you know, the point being, I mean, it's nice to hear from, from old friends. It's not nice when they, when they have a, a specific agenda and it feels transactional, Right. but no, I mean, Believe me, it's like I've spent the past, you know, two plus years just focused on this book and my blog, and I haven't spent uh, as much time with uh, with as with many of the people that uh, that I that I'm close to. So, you know, it feels really good to to reconnect with a lot of people. And and, you know, you look at it, it's like the single best the thing, single best determinant of people's happiness is their relationships. Right. So, you know, again, it's kind of a double it's kind of a double win in the sense of you know, uh, you're, you're going to be much happier. You're going to be able to make somebody else happy, hopefully. Uh, and also it turns out that's the greatest starting point in terms of, uh, networking and, uh, and getting ahead. Does it matter in terms of happiness and relationships? Does it matter whether they're work relationships or personal relationships or does it make a difference? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. I mean, there can, you know, you could work with your best friend, um, but, um, the, uh, what was it? Martin Seligman at university of Pennsylvania. was like the, probably the biggest guy in the study of happiness. Uh, he did, uh, he did some work and, uh, basically they, they, uh, they did a, they did a study and they wanted to figure out, uh, what best correlated with someone, uh, being happy and healthy at, at age 80. So of course you, you had to live to age 80 and you had to be happy and healthy. Uh, and the thing that 
the thing that they found was being able to answer yes to one question. And that question was, do you have someone that you could call and tell your troubles to at four o'clock in the morning? And Hmm. people who, who said no to that were not likely to be happy and healthy at, at age 80. And people who said yes were. And so I family, did family count? Uh, I believe so. I, 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 off the top of my head, I can't, I can't cite the specifics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, uh, but the, the point is that, you know, if, if somebody you work with, Hey, if you're that close to them and it's not just a convenient relationship with somebody who's proximate, um, then yeah, it can pay huge dividends. I think it's more of an issue of, of closeness rather than, uh, than work or personal. Right. Right. And so, um, building those close relationships, I mean, this go this takes us right back to the work, um, um, work and life balance because it, it takes and how you measure success because it takes time to build relationships. And if your focus is on financial success or achievement success in the case of an athlete or a, you know, person like that, um, doesn't leave a lot of time for relationship success. Yeah. And that's what you see when they did a study of a thousand doctors, uh, who suffer suffering from burnout. Uh, what they realized was the, the two key, the two key determinants of burnout were perfectionism and lack of lack of relationships. You know, those were, those were the two critical things that resulted in burnout. And when, uh, Nash and Stevenson, two researchers at Harvard looked at, uh, people who had good work-life balance, those were people who had who who had always who had four metrics that they looked at. Uh, one was happiness, the other was achievement, the third was significance, and the fourth was legacy. So they were always making contribute contributions to: Am I enjoying what I'm doing? Am I getting ahead in my in my work? Uh, significance, which was is is my work and my efforts beneficial to to the people I love? And then legacy was the issue of, you know, am I even in a small way making the world a better place? And by by depositing a little bit in each one of those four buckets, people were were able to have uh, work life balance. Yeah, I I love those. Um, I I love the contextual shift that that is required to kind of wrap your head around those four things, you know, as opposed to, and, and look, I'm guilty of it too. I mean, and I look at this stuff all the time. Um, I look at success and it's so easy to get pulled into the vortex of financial success. And when, when you look around, you look at the street you live on, you look at the car you drive, you look at the house you, you own or don't own the apartment you live in. Um, keeping up with the Joneses, it just is so easy to fall into that. And it doesn't predict happiness. You know, it, it doesn't cause happiness. No, we, we, you know, most of us have, uh, most of us adopt the vision of success that we see on TV, we see on the internet and, you know, maybe, maybe some decades ago, you know, that, that might not have been such a big problem. If you lived in a small town and you didn't have the, you didn't have before the internet and TV, uh, the most wealthy person, uh, you know, certainly wasn't a billionaire. Um, you know, so things were realistic and achievable. Now, well, one of the things I remember from your book and sorry to interrupt, sorry to interrupt. Um, but I wanted to just grab this while I remembered 
one of the things you talk about in your book is the size of the community you compare, compare yourself to, or you knew back in, you know, a hundred years ago, it was two or 300 people, maybe at the most. And now it's billions of people on Facebook or on in the news. Absolutely. I mean, you know, most people, you know, a hundred years ago, there was no way for them to, to really compare themselves to the top one thousandth of 1%, you know, uh, on the planet. And now it's very simple. We get treated to, uh, billionaires and, you know, 22 year old rock stars and, you know, all these people who are, have, who are just, you know, the, the top of the top of the top, and we get treated to the stories of their lives every day. And those are just impossible comparisons to make. Not, I mean, not to mention uh, media manipulation or, you know, uh, inaccurate presentations, but, uh, but we just get, we just get this vision of success that is just, you know, not even remotely uh, possible for the vast majority of the population. And that's kind of sad. And so standards are insanely high and, the, and, and we usually adopt uh, you know, the, the standards from our context, from what we see. And that just sets us off running as opposed to having a personal definition of success where you know what you need. And once you get that, you're happy. Uh, we're, we're always kind of comparing ourselves and that's, that's really not a happy way to live. Yeah. I, I was really excited to see you talk about the, um, the technique of self-compassion in, in the book, so it's something I've studied a lot. I, I went through a two-year program at the University of Santa Monica about basically it's on self-compassion, the whole program, if you put it in a nutshell, um, and how that strategy of being compassionate and kind basically to yourself is a much better long-term strategy than than um, um, any other uh, yeah, I mean, uh, most specifically, uh, you know, in, in the area of self-esteem and confidence, um, you know, most people have a baseline level of confidence, but, you know, trying to increase that, it's it can be tricky because self-confidence, uh, you know, often if, you know, if you're trying to push it higher, it often becomes either delusional or contingent. Delusional in the sense of, you know, you have a vision of yourself which is inaccurate and, you know, you're there will be a reckoning. Uh, or, uh, or contingent, which means I only feel confident if I succeed at X, I only feel confident if I get that promotion. I only feel confident, uh, if, if that person agrees to go on a date with me. And, and what that means is that your confidence is contingent on things around you, things you probably don't have a hundred percent control over. And so you're going to have this roller coaster of emotions as you feel like you're on top of the world and then you feel like you're the worst person on earth and it's up and down. And so, you know, rather than making it contingent or delusional, self-compassion shows you that rather than trying to convince yourself that you're so awesome, it's much better to be realistic and forgive yourself when you're not perfect. And yeah. And, um, how does that fit into the, so let's say you do that. You are successful at treating yourself kindly with compassion. How does that fit into the continuum of confidence that, how have you found it to fit into that? Uh, basically, you know, what can happen with people is, you know, you get, when you know that your confidence is contingent on success, uh, you're going to be you're going to be more risk averse. You're not going to want to do things that you could potentially fail at because then, you know, it's going to crater your self-esteem. Right. So you become very risk averse. You don't try new things. 
you know, and you limit yourself, you know, and so you just do the same old things. And when you're self-compassionate, you know that you can forgive yourself. So because of that, you are less risk averse. You'll try new things. If I fail, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm, you know, it's fine. I forgive myself. I tried something. I'm glad I tried it. It didn't work out. You know, that allows you to really go out and explore the world and try different things and not beat yourself up when you don't, you don't meet standards that might be completely unrealistic. So compassion, it sounds like in your research, um, kind of short circuits, it grabs, it, it allows you to grab the positives of the less confident people and the positives of the more confident people. And that's actually what uh, research by uh, Kristen Neff at University of Texas found is that, is that self-compassion has all the benefits of self-confidence, but it doesn't have the downsides. Right, right. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's funny as, uh, as we've been talking, I've been scrolling through, I've got a Google document that's about six pages long of my notes from the book. And I've been <laughs> bouncing around from page to page to try to keep up with you <laughs> and, and, and try to remember what I wanted to ask. Um, I hope we haven't lost everyone in the conversation because, uh, cause it's very fresh for me. I, I spent the last week reading your book and, and, uh, doing this and, and, um, it was very important to me to be prepared for this podcast cause I love your stuff so much. And, um, I appreciate it. Man. I, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to get some of your personal insights and I really, really appreciate, um, you sharing as, as openly and honestly as you have. Oh, thank you. No, I, I appreciate you doing the preparation. It's all, it makes for a, for a much better conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, I have one more question. We, we haven't really talked much about the stuff you talk about in the first chapter of the book, the play it safe or the way I described it was play it safe or do what you're told. And, um, it's interesting cause my son is 10 and I see him developing patterns that are, um, you know, like, well, I just saw the patterns that you describe in the book showing up in him in, in, different, <laughs> in different ways, in different Is that ways. Is a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's, it's, well, like you said in the book, you gotta, you gotta pick the right pond, right? You gotta, you gotta know thyself and pick the right, right pond. Cause there is no good or bad, which, which actually was a huge relief as a parent to, to, to think about this, like, Oh, right. There isn't a wrong way to do this. No, I mean, that's what you see, uh, you know, when I talk about the issue of genetics where, you know, the, the kind of the orchid and the dandelion theory where, you know, most people are, are, you know, analogous to dandelions. Like, you know, you don't plant dandelions. You don't care for dandelions. They pop up by the side of the street. You know, most people are pretty resilient, you know, and pretty straightforward. And then you have, you know, people who, who are orchids, which orchids, you know, are very difficult to to uh, to raise properly, require a lot of attention, a lot of care. Uh, but if handled properly, they become the most beautiful flowers out there. And that's what you you often see is that, you know, some most people will be fine. You know, they'll come out pretty good in any context. Uh, but your, your dandelion types, if they're in a bad environment, they will be the worst of the worst. And if they're in a good environment, they'll be the best of the best. And it's, it's, it's kind of cartoonish to, to talk about orchids and dandelions, but this is what some of the cutting, re cutting edge research really shows, you know, and, and that can help people kind of understand if they are pretty, you know, pretty resilient, 
then, you know, hey, great. Then it's 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 much safer for them to move around, uh, you know, and, you know, may, but maybe they won't uh, be at the most extreme tales of things. On the flip side, people who are extremely sensitive to their environment, they need to be a lot more careful. But if they are careful and they find the, the right environment, you know, then they can blow away the competition. So so there's, you know, many examples in the first chapter of just how having that self-knowledge and using it to to select the right context uh, really makes a huge difference in terms of how how successful people's lives are. Yeah, I I, uh, I thought it was really cool. Like when you talk about valedictorians and grades and how focused as parents we are on making sure our kids are studious and and getting grades and getting good grades and making sure they're improving. It, it doesn't always it predicts some things, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean success necessarily. And the rules that there are the things that schools reward generalists, you know, being a generalist and uh, having clear rules and living by the rules, you know, life doesn't operate that way. And uh, it doesn't necessarily predict life success. Well, I mean, and that's, and that's the issue that, you know, most, most parents, most, most, most parents think they want the best for their kids. And that's, that's not the best way to express it, you know, because most parents want the not worst for their kids. Huh. Huh. Uh, the, no, because, because, because getting the best, getting the absolute best entails an enormous amount of risk. Yeah. And, and the, th- the first thing that every parent wants for their child is their child to be safe. You know, they don't want bad things. The first thing is you don't want bad things to happen to you. I, I would say moms more than dads want their kids to be safe. <laughs> I want them to just be safe enough. My mom, my mom. Uh, I, I don't have children. I can't speak to, to the specifics there. I'll yeah, leave yeah, that yeah. to you. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. No, my wife and I, it's a funny thing. My wife and I always talk about this. I want him to be just safe enough. And yeah. she wants him to be safe, like to be end all safe. Like he, if she could do it, she'd put a bicycle helmet for him to walk across the street. And I want him to get on a bike, maybe even without a helmet sometimes. Cause you know, it's, it's a risk I'm willing to let him have if he falls and, you know, hopefully he doesn't break his head open. Yeah. But it's, I mean, yeah, you're saving money for college, but the first thing you want to do is make sure your kid long lives long enough to go to college. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, right. It's, it's that the first issue is safety. Yeah. And that implies, you know, a, a, you know, a certain amount of, you know, you can play to win or you can play not to lose, you know, and, and those are two, there's significant overlap there, but they're very different, you know, they're very different perspectives. I mean, if you want to, if you want to win, the, if you want to win the most money in Vegas, uh, take the deed to your house <laughs> and, and, and bet it on black. <laughs> you know? right. I mean, that will make you the best return. Most people are not willing to, to do that. And understandably, understandably, but that's the issue there when you get into valedictorians is, is, is being a valedictorian the, the absolute best way to Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard, Steve jobs dropped out of college, right? You know, I mean, then they're, they're, they were, or are both billionaires. Albert Einstein, I believe didn't finish school. I remember reading that. Yeah. So, you know, so there is that issue of, 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 of asking and trying to be honest. It's like, you know, because it's a spectrum, it's not black and white, right. uh, you know, to what degree are you playing to win? To what degree are you playing not to lose? 
you know, and that that's not a fun, it's not a fun question to ask, but it's a very honest one. It's a very realistic one because once you realize your level of risk tolerance, uh, that really determines what possibilities are open to you. And then once you have that list, then all of a sudden you can, you can start making better decisions. Right. Right. Yeah. Know, know thyself. I mean, it's just, um, you know, the thing we started with the podcast started talking about an hour ago was alignment and knowing, basically knowing thyself. And, um, I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Like it, it's just the better, you know, your the way you operate and the way you function in the world, the more likely you are to be able to set your life up in the way that works for you. And I mean, that's really what I've been, what I try to do. And, um, it sounds like that's what you're, that's kind of the essence of the book. Well, I mean, you know, we all see examples uh, or hear stories about, you know, insanely quote unquote successful people who aren't happy. And that's because they found that's because they found what society calls success, but it wasn't their personal definition right. of success. Right. And 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 we look and we go, oh, my God, he's a millionaire. How can he possibly be miserable? And, you know, that's that may not have been the most important thing to to that person. And so, you know, you have to before you can seek your personal definition of success, you have to understand what that is. And that's a personal question that that everybody needs to ask themselves. Eric, um, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate your time. I appreciate what you do. I appreciate your 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 persistent regular posting on your blog and the email list that I am sub- subscriber to. Um, I appreciate your book and the deep dive that, that, uh, that it gave and your, and your, and your, uh, your response to my email. Hey, I'll be on your podcast. Sure. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on Andy. It was really a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, um, we'll, um, hopefully, hopefully we'll, hopefully now I can call you a friend. <laughs> and that's that's the secret to happiness and to and to networking so so dude you're 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 already making big 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 strides there awesome awesome all right thanks again we'll talk to you soon bye-bye oh, yeah. the whole life challenge podcast is produced by our podcast team ernie hurtado becca borowski and cameron banfield You can find all our episodes as well as the links to anything we talked about during the episode, plus complete show notes at wholelifechallenge.com forward slash blog. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And if you like it, please remember to give us a favorable rating in iTunes and recommend it to your friends. I'm Andy Petronic. Thanks for listening.